Before the RouterFlex podcast episode of the day, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Ant Morehouse on the RouterFlex podcast. How you doing, Ant? I'm good, Steve. How are you? First of all, how did you start to, how did you get to Ant? Was that when you were young, when you were a kid? Was that like a nickname? It gets kind of stuck early on or how, how was that? Yeah, it's, um, so it was a, when I was eight, it was my nickname. And then um, uh, my mum hated the name Tony. She hated the Anthony being shortened. And then I joined the army straight out of school. And you don't really get a choice in the army. So it was Tony for the next like decade. Um, and then I remember getting out of the military and creating my first business card. And I was like, well, what, what name do I put on this? Um, cause I've been Tony for so long without, without a choice. So I went back to Anthony and then, um, yeah. And then Ant sort of was a, it was, it, it remained a nickname, but it was also particularly when I was sort of getting out of the hardcore corporate entrepreneurial stuff. And I was trying to not, not so much trying to reinvent myself, but definitely trying to get back in touch with my purpose and, mm. you know, really what fueled me from the inside. Mm. And I kept harking back to this, you know, cheeky kind of independent eight-year-old kid. Um, so I, I sort of, yeah, I don't know, the, the name just sort of stuck and I don't really care what people call me, but, um, but yeah, ultimately ants sort of for me personally, yeah, it just reminds me of the cheeky little eight-year-old kid that um, that I guess I'm trying to stay in touch with now. Well, I like it. It's it's unique. It kind of separates you from the pack a little bit. It makes you memorable. Um, I, I like it. Tell us about your early life a little bit, maybe some, some family, mom, dad, siblings, a little bit uh, about that. Go ahead. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Australian, as you might be able to tell from the accent. Uh, grew up in the country. Um in Australia. So was always, was always outdoors, always on a bike, always sort of, you know, chasing, chasing after a dog uh, or, or sheep or something like that. Um, very, um, very kind of independent, as I sort of said, um, we moved to Canada when I was, when I was five through okay. to eight. Um, and actually, you know, that's, that's when I was, I was sort of patient zero of, of ADHD. So my dad was working at a university in Canada and they were doing studies on hyperactivity. And so one of my earlier memories was going into the hospital with a bottle of my own urine um, to do these university tests uh, and sort of ADHD kind of came out of that. So uh, yeah, wow. a, a lot of my future history kind of, you know, links links back to that kind of stuff. But I was, I was generally a happy kid, but also I'd get very frustrated, particularly when I couldn't be outside, you know, running around. Um, so I guess, yeah, came back to came back to Australia and um, you know went through school when I was fourteen. Um, I um, yeah found the found the military as a as a as an outlet more than anything. You know, I, I never read books. I, I read my first book when I was fourteen, um, and um, yeah, just sort of linked to a passion. It wasn't really going to matter what the passion was. It was just you know something that just lit a fire under me. And what happened was that my dad and I were traveling overseas um, to the UK. And at that time, the, the IRA was, was an issue. This is back in the 90s. And a, a bomb went off in a, in a railway station 
you know, that you know, train station that my dad and I were just at. Mm. Um, and that sort of shook us up a little bit. And we went to see a movie and the movie was uh, with Harrison Ford called Patriot Games. I see. And uh, in that movie, you know, the sort of the, the special forces guys, you know, come in dressed in black and take out the terrorists. And it just sort of hit me, hit me really hard. So from kind of 14 to about 25, when that was my job, um, that's kind of, I was just laser focused on, on sort of doing that. So yeah, I think a relatively typical household, my parents were, you know, supportive, not really of the military because they were both in the medical field, but, but generally, you know, generally good, good parents, blah, blah, blah. So not, not, not outrageous hardships, hardships outside of just trying to navigate the school system that really isn't built for, you know, ADHD types. (laughs) Any siblings? Yeah, sister who's um, who's a little bit younger than me, also also sort of a an entrepreneur now. So um, uh-huh. I, I think like that goes back to my parents were the first in their family to to get a college degree, and wow. and really like by a long shot, like you know needed needed some scholarship support to get there. Uh, particularly, my mum wasn't really supported in that endeavour from her family because quote unquote there was no point in girls you know finishing finishing school mm. and she ended up as a as a as a doctor so oh. while technically and then, and then dad was from the country um for, you know and you didn't really go through school necessarily you, you you worked on the property um but he ended up as a psychiatric nurse because that was the, the only job in the medical field that paid for your degree okay. um that you sort of you know you and he ended up with like seven degrees and a, and a professor. So there was, there's a bunch oh, of wow. sort of education in the family. And, and while they're not technically entrepreneurs by trade, they definitely showed this entrepreneurial spirit. So I'm just sort of standing on their shoulders, really. Nice. Well, they must be super proud now uh, with, with your career and your sister as a doctor. That's, that's uh, a major accomplishment for them. Are they still alive, still healthy? Where, and where are they living? Yeah, yeah, they're both in Australia as well. Um, so oh, cool. both, both actually, both retired. But dad's a dad's an interesting one because he just can't, he just can't leave it alone. So he's about to turn seventy, but he's just done a, uh, what is it, a diploma in ethics from Harvard because he, you know, he just can't stop sort of exercising his brain. So yeah, so I sort of, you know, I, I think the military thing for me was a was a rebellion against a lot of that sort of stuff. Really. Um, but the irony is that my entrepreneurial journey just keeps coming back to the medical field. So, uh, so I can't help yeah. myself. You know, it's, it's in the interesting. Blood, now you got your bachelor's before you went into the military. Is that right? Or, or how does that, I got it, that I, work? I got it in the military. Yeah. Okay. So, so okay. yeah, I joined, I joined, you know, straight out of school and then you, okay. you do sort of four years of, of army officer training, but at the same time, you get a, a degree, and mine was in sort of mine was in politics and, and a master's in international relations. And again, like I, I sort of did the degree thing to appease my parents. Um. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, so many people I know go into the military, right? The military rec- recruits, I don't know, you know, millions of kids a year across the planet. So many of these kids go in thinking, I'm going to be special forces and a very tiny percentage actually make it to that level. When you first joined, were you thinking I'm going to be special forces and and I'm going to make it happen? Or did that goal happen after you were in? I was pretty laser focused, like at 14, 
I had, um, okay. you know, like all the kids had posters up on their walls of, you know, football players or basketball players or rock stars or, you know, beach babes or whatever. I had a, I had a, I had a gas mask wearing counterterrorism, you know, <laughs> operator on my wall when I was 14. <clears throat> weird. It's totally weird. But yeah, I was, I was just obsessed and I kind of didn't let it go. Wow! Congratulations, by the way, uh, making it through. The, but is it is it as hard as the as the movies make it out to be to make it through the training and get? Is it? Yeah, I, I guess it is. Um, but it's I mean it's for me it's really kind of a parallel to life, right? So, um, and it, and it's just you know let's say like Air Force people, you know, so many want to be pilots, but so few do. You know, right. Navy people might want to be helicopter pilots or whatever. You know, so few do. And so, you know, from, from my journey through it, um, it, it it's that, that sort of elite team stuff. Um, it's, it's much more about raising the bar on the, on the lowest common denominator. Mm. And, and so, and that's what makes it, that's what makes them high performance teams. Mm. And I think that in my, in my entrepreneurial stuff, my business career, and, and now I do a bit of sort of leadership, leadership, um, leadership work with companies on, on the side, sort of side hustle to, you know, to keep my, keep my sort of, um, you know, keep my, keep my hand in the game, so to speak. Um, organizations that are looking to create a high performance culture. One of the things they're looking to do is raise the bar. So, you know, I, I went through my military kind of training West point kind of, kind of stuff, I guess, but the Australian equivalent and then I was in the infantry for three years as a, as a, as a commander of sort of 30 infantry soldiers okay. and, and terrific people, great stuff. Um, but you can only ever, you can only ever operate at the level of the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And so what happens as you go through the special forces selection process or, or anything equivalent to it, you're, you're, you're weeding out, you're, you're weeding out the lowest common denominator. And I mean, no disrespect to any of that because there's injuries there's um, aptitude, trainability is the most important part. So there's a series of things that they're looking through um, through that selection process. And the selection process is one arduous, too long. You know, it takes about 18 months from when you first sort of put up your hand to when you're, you know, uh, badged wearing the beret. But through that process, the number one thing they're looking for is trainability. And so when you think about the amount of money the taxpayer is paying for that particular individual to be trained, right. if, if they need to, if that individual needs to be reminded of things four or five times before they can pick up and learn, then the rate of, um, the, rate of um, the rate of learning, the, the rate of progress, the rate of development is reduced. And that's obviously unacceptable. Hmm. Um, and I think in a real high performance team, from a from a corporate sense in an entrepreneurial sort of way, it's exactly the same. Agreed. It's exactly the same. Agreed. And so my favorite thing in the world is to be part of high performance teams because I guess that what what makes the special forces special forces is that a small group of highly motivated and highly trained people can have a exponential output on the given mission. It's mm -hmm. kind of the whole point. Um, and so I think it's absolutely the same as that in, you know, in a, in a business or, or any sort of organizational environment where it's not the size of the organization, it's the power of the team who's kind of leading the charge. 
Um, so I think, you know, when you look at um, the great sporting teams, you know, where the, where the, um, where the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of their parts, you know, what, what makes them exceptional is, yes, there was some talent, sure, but as a team they gelled extremely well yeah. and they had very high standards and the lowest common denominator was set very high mm-hmm. so that they could push really high um, or really hard as a, as a, as a kind of a team. So, um, yeah, I learned that through that SF world, but, you know, I think it's applicable across the board. Totally agree. Did you think about being an entrepreneur while you were in the service? Did you have any idea what you wanted to do after while you were in the service at all? Or, and a two part question: Were you also thinking about doing like twenty years? Uh, yeah, yeah. Through? Well, initially, I think you know. I, I mean, I, I, it's it's all I wanted to do, and and I guess you 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 look up the chain, right? You look up the you look up the hierarchy in whatever whatever field you're doing, and um, and so you want to, yeah. So at that point, I wanted to be a general, you know, because that's what you did, okay. right? You, okay. You climb the ladder, and then, and then very, very quickly, I worked out, particularly as an officer, that you go, you go from kind of being in the field, you know, roping out of a helicopter and blowing something up, to then being the staff officer sitting behind a computer, writing up some instructions so other people can go and do it. And so, because I'm, I'm very action orientated, um, yeah. and so that was. That was sort of you know that career path wasn't necessarily what I what I wanted, and in particular the military, all large organisations um, are fairly rigid, and there's a bunch of good reasons for that. But I, I didn't know that I had this entrepreneurial spirit. I didn't even know what that was. I'd, I'd never heard the term entrepreneur, but I was I was doing a um, I was doing a job, uh, and um, uh, I was at the airport and it was one of, one of the last kind of operational sort of things that I was doing. Okay. And I was at the airport and this book just called out from me on the shelf. And it was by this guy called Richard Branson who had this airline called Virgin. And <laughs> in this book, he talks about this concept that at the time I could hardly read the word, you know, it was entrepreneurism. And it took me another seven or eight years before I could spell it right. But um, uh, yeah, what he, what he spoke to wasn't about, um, big planes and, and and fancy houses and and being a billionaire, what he spoke to was this notion of like having an idea and starting with a blank sheet of paper and turning that into something. Right. And I just think that's the most incredible thing in the world to 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 set out on that path to to achieve that. Um, and so that's that's what really really grabbed me because what I was what I was facing in the military at the time again, similar to any large organization is rigid structures. And, you know, I was trying to kind of bust out of that all the time to be, to be creative. Um, And I didn't really know this at the time. I was, I was trying to understand myself and my role and my, my kind of future. But, but as I get older, I realize how, how much I value creativity, um, which, which I think more than anything sets the, sets the entrepreneurial kind of mindset. So you get out and uh, you tell us, tell us about your first company, walk us through that, um, how large you grew it and the, and the, and you know, the exit of it, uh, whether or not it was it a successful exit, made you a billionaire talk, give us some details. Yeah. So it was a, it was a decade long overnight success story, I guess. Um, and when, there was, there was a really good friend of mine who, um, who was getting out of the military at a similar time. 
and we both had a similar decision to make. Were we going to get out, um, you know, go and do an MBA, uh, go and work in big business, learn the trade on someone else's dollar, um, and then go and do something entrepreneurial? Or were we just going to get out and start? And he and I took opposite paths. He's a bit more analytical than I am. Um, I'm a kinetic learner. So I, I learn by doing. And okay. so he went, he, he took the smart path, the considered path, the, the path of, of greater chance of success. He went and did the MBA, uh, got good, got a great job, you know, got promoted kind of quickly. Um, and then five or six years later, went and started his own thing. Um, and I just, I just started. Um, and I really, I, I, I sort of, I started something in the crisis management, international evacuation kind of field. So I had a basis in the subject matter, okay. um, but I knew no one in business. I had no education in business. Um, I really knew nothing about business. And wrapping back to that first one, I knew no one in business. And, and that was the bit that I completely discounted. Mm. Like I thought I can learn this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, I can read the books, I can, I can, I can experientially learn it, but having no network, um, that was the bit that cost me a lot of time. And so I guess my appeal to, to anyone out there listening, who's, you know, thinking about a big move, uh, you know, the old adage of it's not what you know, it's who, you know, you know, <laughs> unfortunately that's, there's a truism in that, I think, um, because ultimately people do business with people, you know, we're, we're, we're very social creatures. Yes. Uh, and we can't discount that. Like you can't, mm -hmm. you can't pull that off a resume. You know, you can't, you can't necessarily get that from, from reading the books, but you can by, by meeting the people and learning from the people and, and building a building relationships with people. So, yeah, so that cost me. Um, and then, you know, I think I almost went bankrupt three times over the journey um, but but built built that built that business to about 155 staff working wow. you know all all around the world really on behalf mainly on behalf of insurance companies and and large organisations that were sending people into into complex environments um, and then helping them to you know evacuate we were doing about 12,000 evacuations and emergency cases a year wow. um, so we had you know 24/7 sort of doctors and nurses and crisis management people and security staff and the like and i sold that in 2014 to a, a large insurance company um and it was a good exit like it was a it was a good exit you know it, it sort of set myself and the other shareholders up well um there was a long earnout period and when you sell a a small speedboat to a big oil tanker um that those two cultures don't necessarily align all that well so the the earnout Pro, the earnout phase didn't go all that well. The big company did about five big organizational restructures in, you know, in five years. And so the, the strategic linkage that was meant to eventuate didn't. But what it allowed me to do was kind of sack myself as the CEO, put my COO up um, and, and come over to the US. And, and I spent four years in Boulder, Colorado just loving Colorado more than anything, loving, loving the entrepreneurial spirit in the U S um, and loving the, the little microcosm of a, of a, of a kind of a tech startup scene, you know, yep. in, in Boulder. So I learned an enormous amount, an enormous amount while there. I don't think I necessarily gave a lot to the place, but I absorbed a lot that, that I'm kind of using every day now. 
um, around, yeah, I think around the startup culture and, and around and around how to how to build ecosystems uh, around that. How did you, did you know somebody in Boulder or you just knew from, from, you know, the press and, and, and like, how did and, you, yeah. Yeah, it was weird. And if anything, it was, it was much more the adventure side than it was the tech side initially. Um, oh, I see. So, so when I, when I came, the, the business that I exited um, had, uh, I don't know, two or $3 million worth of business out of, out of the U S. So I was going to, I was coming over to kind of grow that. And I and see, Denver, I see. And Denver was a, was a kind of a, you know, we had, we had clients I in see. Denver. Okay. Um, gotcha. But instead of, yeah, but instead of living in Denver, I sort of, you know, gravitated towards the, towards the mountains and um, uh, yeah. And sort of the, the um, yeah, the athleticism and all of that sort of thing in Boulder. And then, and then I did, yeah. I did know it was a bit of a tech, a tech hub. And so I did want to learn that trade and learn, learn venture capitalism as a trade and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, yeah, that's, that's what took us there. And yeah, the family absolutely loved it. The earnout period, will you give some advice to uh, aspiring entrepreneurs or people that may not know kind of how that works? You know, a lot of times you get acquired, you know, whoever buys you wants, wants you to stay on for a little while um, you get, you get, you get somewhat of a payday when they first buy you. And then your other payday comes along later. What, what, based on what you went through, what advice would you, would you give to anybody faced with that type of decision on a, on a, on a earn out type of type of deal? Yeah, it's complex. No question. So, um, this is overly simplistic, but in, in essence, there's two types of deals. Um, and imagine it like a product and a service. And so if, if what you do is products um, and, and tech could be a product or, or, you know, widgets could be a product. If a company comes and buys your product company and they're looking for the brand and the manufacturing and the, and the products themselves, maybe they don't need you um, anymore. And, and you could take that as a good thing or a bad thing, depending on, you know, yep. where, where you're at. Yeah. Um, and so that's basically they, they can absorb the, 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 the IP, the tech, the brand, the distribution, whatever they're really looking to, to acquire. Um, and, and you're kind of relieved of duty or maybe you, maybe you stick around for, for a year and then, and then you know, you can, you can sort of go on to the next, the next grand adventure. And it's funny, like some people really want to be part of the bigger organisation and, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, they start something small, they sell to something big, they become a key part of something big and, and can continue on to have a, a brilliant career. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not really like that. So I'm, I'm, you know, I prefer to be at the sort of, you know, at the, at the smaller end, but I guess in some respects, like a victim of, of my own kind of, um, uh, I was the face of the organization and, and you, you stayed for, right for after they bought you or after the, you got acquired, you stayed for like four years. You had a four year ride along. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and, it, and that wasn't necessary. I mean, I, this honestly, I, I provided nowhere near that kind of value, nowhere near, but whatever <laughs> they, they felt that was important and they, and, and they really backed that into the deal. Like it was, an, you know, they were, they were fairly kind of um, yeah, we could negotiate on a bunch of different points. Not, not that one. Um <laughs> And, 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 and they, they made some assumptions about, you know, how much, how much of the business was, was about me. And honestly, by that you. stage, it wasn't that much, but whatever. So, um, I got yeah. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it, it, 
ultimately it's it's an individual choice from and, and and it does create complexities particularly if there's like multiple founders or multiple multiple mm. members of the team and some the acquirer chooses mm. to lock in because maybe they're buying they're buying it for the tech and so the cto gets locked in but there's no need for the ceo or vice mm. versa or whatever the case so you know it's it's tough not to take personally mm. it is it is really complex and and the whole the whole like the whole merger acquisition process selling your company is personal because it's your baby and yeah. and it's it's hard not for you to take it personally um but on the other side they're not necessarily you know seeing it from a personal side they're looking at at numbers and and strategy and so it's yeah it's a difficult process no question but it's it's a it can be very creative and and if you can if you can sort of take a step back from 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 it being personal um then it's a it's a way a way to you know unlock a lot of a lot of um well whether it's wealth or opportunity or just change and and for me where the where the acquisition of the company really started to pick up steam and and we and we closed out the deal um i was sitting down for lunch with a with an old boss of mine from the military and he was saying you know how are you how are you going and he meant it as a as an individual um but i answered it as a business i'm like oh well you know revenues up and blah blah and these opportunities are coming through but my answer felt quite hollow mm-hmm. and then when i reflected on it uh and then we got to sort of talking about it he goes your issue is that you're a you're an army officer used to being posted every two or three years you've been locked into this one job for a decade and while the business had literally changed from being on my kitchen table to you know having 150 odd staff it was the same gig and so you know he really made me realize that part of the part of the purpose of doing the doing the sale was to to start the next chapter Yep. When you were in Boulder during those four years, were you thinking, I'm going to start something else? I'm looking for my next, you know, plan? Yeah, I did. I did. And I, and I kind of did too quickly, I think. I, um, um, and, and also, like, when you, when you start something, grow something, sell something, um, it's, it's tough not to buy into the successful entrepreneur kind of whatever, you know hyperbole mystique blah 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 so yeah i very quickly thought um well i can do this again (laughs) and and i started something as a side hustle um thinking i was going to grow it It was like right i'm going to sit back and i'm going to do the strategy and i'm going to get other people to go into the weeds and and it just didn't work and um and it failed you know pretty quickly um, and then I, I looked at another thing and it was opportunistic again. And, you know, I, I, I didn't start it, but I almost did. And there was another project that I was kind of, you know, I, I got my teeth into for a while and nothing was clicking, nothing was clicking. And I, I really kind of got down on myself. Mm. And, and in retrospect, what I look at is, and, and, and when, I, when I speak to people that have like, are experienced in this craft, it's got to be more about the money. Uh, it's got to be, it's got to be about more than just the money. Right. Um, and you've got to have a real kind of, um, you gotta have a, you gotta have a drive to solve the problem. And so in those, in those projects that, that kind of failed, I was dialing it in, you know, I was, I was thinking, well, I know that I know how this game is played now. 
I'm just going to dial it in. I'll sit back and, and rely on whatever, whatever <laughs> bullshit I was feeding myself at the time, you know, and, and it's just like, if you can be an investor and be standoff, um, or you can be like non-executive and, yeah. and be standoff. But if, but someone has to be the driving force, yes. someone has to be the prime mover that like, that's right. Know, lives it, breathes it, sleeps it. And, and one day I'll work out how not to do that. And I'm kind of getting there. I'm kind of getting there now, only just, but, um, but yeah, as an entrepreneur, like if, if what you, if, if you're used to being the prime mover, it's pretty tough to do a startup without, without that blood and sweat and tears. It's just, somebody's got to, somebody's got to hustle. Yep. Somebody's got to hustle it. Somebody's got to push it. There's got to be a bulldozer pushing everybody along right somebody's got to push everything along i totally agree how did you okay walk us into so what march of 2019 roughly walk us into earth tech kind of how that idea was formulated how how it was started walk us into uh the whole thing and by the way it's earthtech.io right for the listeners earthtech.io yeah walk us into it a little bit go for it yeah, so uh, we're coming back from, from Boulder. It was time to bring the kids back to Australia. Um, and I took the kids to the Great Barrier Reef and saw the damage. Mm. Um, and I was thinking about, like, in, in Boulder, I was, I was doing some stuff with social enterprise. Um, and I was kind of falling in love with that as a concept anyway. And social enterprise, impact ventures, um, profit for purpose, whatever you call it. But it's basically, it's using capitalism as a mechanism but not a purpose. So the mm. purpose of a social enterprise, uh, profit for purpose, organization, impact venture, is that the product or the, the, the purpose of the organization, the mission of the organization, the way that the organization is structured up, the way it delivers its solution to the problem is focused on the environmental or social cause that you generally imagine or you generally think of a charity or a, a not-for-profit but you're using capitalism as a mechanism and okay. and so i was already kind of falling in love with this came back to australia saw the damage to the reef and it was just a lightning bolt to the gut it was like a right you know at 40 something years old if i'm not spending the rest of my life using my my resources my craft my knowledge that i've acquired the scars on the mental scars all over me from mistakes made the people I know etc if I'm not if I'm not like corralling all of that to help you know ultimately make the planet a bit better for my kids then what's the point and 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 it started very selfishly like I was not thinking about saving the whales and waving the flag I was thinking about what my kids would think about me on my deathbed. Mm. If I had the opportunity to do more and I didn't. I um, so it started really selfish, right? It's broadened out a bit since then, but, th- but that was, that was, that there's, there's no, there's no, there's no Samaritan story here. Like this was, this was me wanting to not look, you know, wanting my kids <laughs> to be proud of me when I died. That was it. And and so, and then shortly after that, because this is what happens in life, right? When you, when you, when you have a realization and you start focusing on something, all of a sudden people start walking into your life that align to it. 
um, you know, you're, you're thinking about red cars, all of a sudden all you see is red cars. And, and for me, that was my now co-founder, Brian. And, you know, I've, I've had, I think I've had seven startups, you know, I've had two successes, I've had three or four failures or two or three failures, a couple of question marks, you know, check back, check back in five years time. But I've never had a business partner that was truly like the yin to my yang, you know, I've, I've got, I've got a marriage like that. My wife's super awesome, but I've never had a business partner where it was truly like, you know, complimentary. Um, and so I'm, I'm coming at this from a, like, from a, a sort of a fast growth ventures, scale up, you know, the, um, being the prime mover kind of space. Brian's coming at this from a deep design, brand trustworthiness, technology. You know, he ran TEDx um, in, in the place that we live for, for a long time. So rallying people around ecosystem building. And, and basically what brought us together was this philosophy that the planet's fucked um we we don't have an enormous amount of time and it could be it could be multi-generations but but that's but still you, not a lot of, but still in the big scheme of things that's not a lot of time <laughs> that's it and like traditional societies you know th- th- talk, talk about like seven seven generations so they they make they make decisions based off seven generations past hmm. and seven generations forward um, we make decisions in our culture based on political cycles and quarterly, quarterly, like, you know, quarterly shareholder <laughs> updates, right? And so when you take a slightly longer view, um, the, you know, the, the planets, we're, we're, we're just using it, we're using its resources far too quickly. Yes. And so that's a problem. Um, and there's a bunch of inequities in the world, and that's a problem. Um, but man, capitalism is powerful. Oh my God. Like it can, it can distribute cost-effective, uh, efficient solutions to problems like no other mechanism that humanity has ever come up with. The problem isn't the mechanism. The problem is, is, is money is the only thing that matters. And yeah. so when you, when you have a purpose above and beyond the money and the money and the mechanisms to attract it, i.e. investment, to deploy it um, and to, to make it regenerative, um, you know, it's a powerful, it's a powerful mechanism. And so what we kind of came to, to what, what brought us together in our belief system, and that's an important part, right? When you're, when you're setting out in an endeavor, values are really what sticks this thing together, particularly yes. with a purpose-led mission. Yes. Um, and just as an aside, what I absolutely love about it is that my entrepreneurial kind of career to the, to the point of earth tech it was just entrepreneurial. It was just entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. It was just mm-hmm. business. Like right. we were doing kind of cool stuff, you know, evacuating people in, in, in medical emergencies, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't care. I, I honestly didn't care. Like the people I was surrounding myself with, the books that I was reading, they were about growth, revenue, cutting cost, profit. That's what we spoke about. Every board meeting, that's what we spoke about. Right. Whereas going back to my military career, like what brought the team together, this high performance team was purpose. And so what I've, what we've, what we've, in, what we're endeavoring, endeavoring to do at EarthTech specifically, but also I, I guess we see ourselves as kind of ecosystem builders, you know, in this, in this entrepreneurial, in this social entrepreneurial space, 
is that when there's a purpose and a mission that's like sig significant, man, the, your ability to rally people around it is astronomical, astronomical. Like we've got such a high performance team because people are rallied around the mission. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's an enormous power that can be unlocked there if you really mean it and if the value system is really strong. Because we are, in 2021, we're at a point in our societies sped by COVID or where, where capitalism is really stakeholder capitalism. Like we're not selling a product or a service. You know, it goes back to the Simon Sinek thing, right? Why, you know, what's your, what's your why? And your, and your what and your how is just how that why is manifested in, 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 in your communities. And so stakeholder capitalism is really all, of, all around how do you engage with people who believe what you believe um, that, yes, buy your stuff to solve a problem that they have, but whether it's shareholders, whether it's employees, whether it's customers, whether it's communities, whether it's regulators, et cetera, et cetera, you know, modern day um, capitalism is really built around this. And, we're, and you're seeing it. You can, you, can, you can look at it on the share price indexes. The companies that are going up are the ones that, that are, are really embracing the, the sort of environmental, social side of their brands. And those that, are, those that are going the other way are those laggards that are, are kind of assuming that they can, they can get by just with a, a product or service that, you know, that does its job. So we're all about that at EarthTech. And ultimately, um, what the problem that we're trying to solve for is that impact investment is the fastest growing asset class in the world. Okay. We're also going through the fastest intergenerational transfer of wealth in human history. And that wealth is going to, uh, to millennials, to Gen Zs who give a shit. These, these are the people, and there's plenty of older people as well, who have worked out through this mechanism of social enterprise impact investment that they can have their cake and eat it too. They can, they can generate a return on their investment, good for the pocketbook, and point that towards solving a problem for the environment or humanity. Um, and so what used to happen, you know, with and still still happens to a regard, is that people would go and earn their money, however they earned their money, it didn't really matter. There was no questions asked, there was no, there was no liability on the balance sheet for environmental damage or right whatever you just you made you made your money and if you made a lot of it you were a successful person and then some of that would go into philanthropy right um for tax, pur for tax purposes often for tax purposes <laughs> now we're seeing this coming together where you know where and and so um according to the united nations to achieve what's called the sustainable development goals which is 17 goals that spell out the environmental and social um, goals that we as, as, as individuals should be aspiring to. And they're pretty basic stuff, right? So it's, you know, mm -hmm. zero hunger, good education, better equality, better healthcare for all, um, you know, clean oceans, clean air, like the, all of the things that we want for our kids and our yeah. grandkids and, you know, those around the world. To achieve that, we need $4 trillion of new capital deploying into this space every single year. But the mechanisms that we have 
to deploy that capital that's coming online, like, because everyone wants in on this, right? Everyone wants in on being able to have your cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. You're telling me I can get a return on my investment <clears throat> right. and I can do good with that money? Yes. Signing up. Yep. So all of these uh, sovereign wealth funds and pension funds and private equity funds and venture capital funds and angel funds and public markets are all jumping on board into this space. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for innovation that is taking society from where we are today to where we need to be, to be a, a sustainable planet. And whether you're thinking about electric cars or, or um, emissions-free energy or better education for everyone or better healthcare for everyone, like all of these things fit in this box. Um, but the mechanism that we have to deploy that capital into the innovation that is needed to get us from where we are today to where we need to go, it's pretty old school. It's okay. pretty clunky. And so what we're doing at EarthTech is building a Henry Ford style assembly line to fast track the deployment of that capital into innovation that can create exponential scale for humanity to achieve these goals. Mm. And so in essence for us, we, we're a tech company, um, but we operate a bit like Goldman Sachs, like that we're, 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 we're an investment bank and, and we're, not, we're not technically a bank. That's not what investment bankers do. What investment bankers do is bring deals together. So we, we're bringing together the entrepreneurs with the ideas uh, that need the capital to scale up their, their businesses, to scale up their revenues, but ultimately to scale up the positive impact that they right. can have on their right. target. Right. And, and, the, and the funds and the investors that are looking to, to, to invest in the, you know, the next big things um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a journey, but what we've, what we've, it took us about two years to really nail this down and get the, get the whole stack lined up the purpose, the mission, the, the, the product and services, you know, the, 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 the problem solution mix, mm-hmm. the markets we wanted to operate in the revenue model that was going to be scalable enough and sustainable enough for us to, to, to get out there and, and sort of deliver on the impact that we want to have. And so ultimately, the- our, our, our mission is to positively impact 1 billion people by 2030 um, through the purpose or through the mechanism of, of innovation towards the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So the call what's, out. What's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. So the call out to your listeners is, you know, some of, some of them will, might, may be on either side of this ecosystem. They, there may be you know, investors or they work at investment funds or, or what have you that's looking for the next innovation coming through that can solve for these things. Or maybe they're an aspiring or a current entrepreneur that's looking for more capital, more funding to, to grow their business. And they're the, they're the two sides of, the, of our ecosystem that we're trying to bring together. And what's the business model? It's not, so you're not managing a fund or are you, or, or is it like a, a, you're, a, you're like a, a broker, so to speak? I don't want, I hate to use that word, but what's your, what's yeah, your business yeah, model? The, yeah, yeah we're, we're eHarmony. Okay. So, um, so we're, the, we're okay. the matchmaker that brings the two sides together. All it's right. heavily curated. So we spend, a, you know, we spend a bunch of time with the, with the entrepreneurs, but not to make their business better. We're not an incubator. We're not an accelerator. We're not a venture studio. It's really, at that point, it's more like an advertising company where we're helping them to shape their narrative in a way that speaks to what the investors want to, want to hear, want to, okay. and, and not, you know, not, not, 
not telling mis not telling untruths, not lying, but certainly yeah. like taking, yeah. you know, taking the information that's that the that the entrepreneur wants to articulate, and reshaping that into a way that the investors are are, are looking for. Are you and taking a the fee? Are you side, taking a fee of the investor? Yeah, yeah, and then we and then we clip the ticket in the middle. Um, and then if, if the organizations and the investors want us to stay on board for a longer term journey, then there's a, you know, there's equity options and that kind of thing. But, but ultimately, yeah, it's a, it's a matchmaking service and we clip the ticket on the way through. Gotcha. Okay. Love it. By the way, um, are you the first to develop this kind of e-harmony investor to entrepreneurs that are doing something healthy for the planet? Or is there a bunch of competition around this? Where do you stand in the marketplace compared to others? Yeah, none of the ingredients that we're using to bake our cake are, are unique. You know, we're we're just putting we're putting them together in a in a unique format, um, okay. and and you know it's very data driven, um, and and we're focused we're focusing specifically on on funds um, and and helping them to we're, we're, you know our value proposition ultimately is to the funds because okay. they're they're um, they've got a lot of capital to deploy. And they need to deploy it fast. And the process of finding great deals and and going through the due diligence process and you know yeah. working with the entrepreneurs, it's hard. It's really mm. really hard. Right. Um, and so we we've just dived straight into the middle of that complex problem to try to systemize it on behalf of the funds at one end and the entrepreneurs at the other. So yeah, there's Love there's it. definitely you know you could Love you could it. point to to competition. Um, but we're certainly, we're certainly in the sweet spot for where we're, where we're looking to be for sure. I, I love, I love the idea. Give us an idea or give us a, a kind of an overview of how the size of the company now, uh, how many employees, I don't know if you want to speak to revenue or not, or, you know, how big is it? Give us some ideas there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a pretty small team, uh, seven people at the moment. Um, okay. but, um, but, you know, refer back to the start of the interview around the whole high performance team, special forces culture piece. Um, so we don't need a lot more people. It'll, it'll expand out a bit over the next few years, but this isn't going to be a 40,000 person company. And that's for sure. Um, very tech tech kind of driven. Um, and then, yeah, we've, yeah, we've you built called a, it. You called it a tech company. Um, what do you mean by that? Is it is it is there special software you've developed that makes the connection matchmaking process easier? Is that why you're calling it tech company? And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So we we built we built our own tech that enables us to to you know reach out, call for call for entrepreneurs to come through, you know, validate those ideas matchmake to the funds based off their mandates um so yeah it's a it's a relatively slick tech play for sure ultimately okay. people do business with people though so you know it's yep. it, at its heart it's it's about people but the the tech enables the scalability um where we've built a book of business which is about 500 million dollars which and what all that means all that means it's not a 500 million dollar business yet <laughs> all that means is that the the total ask from the ventures that we've chosen to represent I see. Is, is, is sitting at that. And then on the other side, there's about $5 trillion worth of funds under management from the investment funds that we're, um, that we're working with to, to find ventures that specifically meet their mandates. I mean, if I was a billionaire, if I, if I ran a family office in Denver and I was looking to invest and I wanted to invest in an impact you know, situation, 
where I'm doing something good for the planet. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't want to like go online and try to find that myself and figure out who, I mean, I just want to, I just want to call aunt and say, Hey man, tell me, tell me where to put my money and what, what, what matches best with me. I mean, I see the need for it. I think it's great. Um, okay. Very good. Let me ask you, you know, if you had to pick your, if you had to force rank, uh, you know, the things that you could do for the planet, what's most important to you personally? Oceans, forest, yeah, so for forest. Me, yeah, yeah, and no, that's good. It's good. So, so for me, it's it's inequities, uh, inequality, inequality rather. So, okay. um, uh, you know, we've got. And, and, the, and the, 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 the 17 of these sustainable development goals mm-hmm. and they all operate individually, but ultimately they all link. And so without good education, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to fix, you know, climate change. If, in, unless we, unless we have um, carbon neutral energy in places like Africa, you know, mm-hmm. through, through Asia, through these development, like we, we've got to, we've got to work out how to get these continents and countries to bypass the industrial revolution that the that that the the, the wealthy countries are just coming out of like mm. if the continent of africa has to go through the fossil fuel burn mm. at a rate that you know the west is is just coming out of just weaning itself off you know we're screwed so mm. we've got to get these developing world countries to to leapfrog all of that sort of, you know, um, industrial revolution stuff. So that's the, that's really my, my personal focus. And, and ultimately with all of this and the reason we're doing this, the way we're doing it is that people generally appreciate that we've got to make some changes, Yes. but we're terrible at this as humans. We don't, we don't like, we don't like being uncomfortable. Right. So the solutions (laughs) that we come up with have to have three things in, in, in our book the three C's, they have to be cheap. They have to be convenient and they have to be cool. And, and as we roll out technologies or technology enabled services that, that fix these problems, if they're cheap and they're convenient and they're cool, people will adopt them en masse. Um, and so they're the, they're the, the, yeah, for me, that's the focus. Isn't it interesting? You're right. I do think most people, the a large majority of the people would all say, Hey, let's, let's protect the planet. Yes. I'm for doing something to, you know, to make it a better place and safer for our grandkids. I think most people would say that you, you're right though. Then right after they say it, they don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't want to change. They don't want to, you know, I mean, here's a small little example. I think of that just for myself, right? Like, I'm a national forest lover in Colorado. I love going up and and I love the nature and everything, but guess what? I take my ATVs with the gasoline and oil and I do all that. Right. And so I can only imagine somebody saying, Hey, listen, uh, yeah, you you know, your ATVs not now have to be battery operated or whatever, like do something to change my hobby. Right. And all of a sudden now I'm uncomfortable, even though I want to save the planet. You're right. So many people think that way, right? I, I totally agree. Yeah, but Steve, if I if I pitch to you that um, you could go up into the mountains and experience them as you have done, but in silence. Yeah. Because your battery operated ATV allows you to experience nature you 
And if it's not costing you any more or much more, and if the range is good enough to allow you to do what you do, and it's cool and it's sexy and it's got amazing talk, you know, now you're in. Now I'm in. Now I'm in. That's a perfect, that's a perfect example. Love it. Love it. Love it. So, so man, I could, I could ask you a million more questions and, and we're already at an hour. Um, is there any, uh, departing advice for, uh, entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs? Let's go with that. Any departing shots at anybody listening, thinking, man, I want to, I want to start my own thing, especially around sustainability, or any of the goals set by the United Nations. By the way, that's that's uh, un.org/sustainabledevelopment, um, and then you can look right there and you can find their goals. Anyway, anybody thinking about starting something, but they have yeah, really think, really think about don't really think about don't doing it. Like really think about um, is there another way to achieve your mission without having to be an entrepreneur? Like, you know, this interview and many of these interviews, it's, 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 you're talking to people that have kind of had some success, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I've had plenty of failure and it's been very, 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 very hard. And then, and then you're interviewing me because I, whatever, you know, part luck, part opportunity, hopefully, hopefully part of it kind of talent and hard work. I, I had a little bit of success, but, you know, we're, we're not doing these interviews with people that have like, that have had enormous failures that have caused depressions and anxieties and financial right. loss and, and family breakups and blah, blah, blah. Good like point. this stuff comes with a warning, yep. you know? Yeah. Um, yep. And so there's, if there's other ways to do it, by, for example, being an intrapreneur, you know, where, where you're able to like, like uh, scratch that itch inside, inside an organization with a lot of resources where, um, you know, you can, you can sort of do something creative or, or make a big change, um, you know, but, but within the comfort of, of an organization with resources. U- ultimately, for me, when I'm, when I'm talking about this when I'm thinking about it myself, I drew a, I drew a little graph for myself or for the person I'm talking to. And there's an x-axis and a y-axis, and our one-axis is reward, you know, from zero to 100 percent, and the other is risk, from zero to 100 percent. And there's a line sort of, you know, up up through the middle of of that. And and I ask people, plot your risk appetite on that line. Mm. And so if someone's got, like, I've got an enormous risk appetite. And so I'm prepared to take enormous risks. Um, and, and therefore, you know, I'm looking for like a fair amount of, of reward in whatever that, whatever that context means. Money, sure, but other stuff as well. And then there's others who love the idea of going out there and being an entrepreneur or starting something from scratch and putting it all on the line. But but they're not prepared, but they, but they don't have risk appetite. Like they, they want to, they want to stay inside the comfortable kind of piece. Right. And I have, I have an enormous respect for those people, right? Enormous respect. Um, and so there's no, there's no right way or wrong way or better way or worse way, but that's the most important piece I think exists for plotting out where your risk appetite is yeah. and, 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 and launching into like 
turning an idea into reality on that line within within the comfort of that of that risk appetite great advice. it's like some some you know lots of people like going skiing it's a great sport and you know some people have can have just an awesome day out like cruising blue runs on nice days you know having a good lunch and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and and other people want to be like hella skiing out the back in in double blacks and both of those things can be really rewarding um but each to their own and so yeah entrepreneurism comes with a warning label great advice aunt i had a guy tell me one time he said listen unless you're prepared to wake up in the morning and look outside and see if your car is still there or if it's been repossessed unless you're prepared to do that then you probably shouldn't be an entrepreneur <laughs> yeah. uh great advice my friend thank you for being on the rider flex podcast i really appreciate it uh-huh.